All right, hello and welcome back to the We Watch Some Movies podcast brought to you by Braves General Store. My name is Brad Blackburn, and this week I am joined not by the insufferable K. McGiamata, but by Bennett Garland, our resident comic book expert. We'll get to him in just a second. But just to go over once again what this podcast is all about, uh, we're filling in um, for the 500, which will return in just two weeks' time, with a podcast not about music, but about movies. So me and my guest this week, Bennett, will be watching three movies from a specific genre or category movies, and the selection is made by me, so it's a good selection. And then we're just going to talk about them. We're going to talk about the influence they had, whether we liked them or not, and make all sorts of values and opinion judgments on them. Um, with that, let me introduce you to Bennett Garland. Bennett, why don't you say hey to everybody. Tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Uh, thank you for having me, Brad. Uh, yeah, so I'm Bennett Garland. I'm actually one of the people who uh, does the 500 podcast that is taking a little break right now while my partner in crime uh, is out doing other stuff and can't record. Um, but I was excited when you asked me about this because um, – the 500 is kind of based off of the fact that me and Kyle don't know a whole lot about music and are exploring that. Whereas superheroes, I know a lot about. Uh, this is kind of like my strong point. It's been where majority of my content for Brave Journal Store has come. Um, I am an avid uh, watcher of all superhero movies, TV shows. I read com the comics. Uh, like if there's a form of superhero media out there, I'm on it. Um, so I was very excited when you, uh, talked about this idea because, um, superhero movies are like probably my favorite genre. Um, and so like this was exciting to get to look at three, um, I don't know, like just major landmarks within the genre to, uh, talk about what they've done, um, and how they have progressed how other superheroes in comic books and graphic novel ad adaptations have been portrayed. Um, so I'm very excited to be here and ready to crack into it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you on. Honestly, um, you, you know, we look at you as a real subject matter expert here, unlike, you know, Stephen Ray Brown, who's going to be on the podcast next week, and Kay Yamada, who was on it last week. Um, you know, the reason I picked Bennett, just for everybody's benefit, is that Bennett writes a lot about comic books on the store, um, and he writes very well about them. We don't always necessarily agree on them, which I think will come to the fore here. But I brought Ben along because he knows the genre, he knows comic books, he knows the source. Um, and I don't. I don't know much about comic books. I've watched the movies, but that's where my knowledge ends. So I think we're going to have a good time here. Um, a quick word about the selection. These are not necessarily the best movies in this genre. I don't think they're even necessarily the most representative of it. The only criteria I picked was that it's three movies that I think we could have a lot to talk about and that hopefully we would enjoy and hopefully that you would see. And then just another quick note about the comic book genre. I, I've listened to a number of podcasts about comic books and apparently you know, there's, the, there's the need to give the warnings about spoilers. Every, <laughs> oh, yeah. every movie that we are watching today or that we watch this week, if you don't know what happens in it and if you're trying to hide from spoilers at this point, just... You know, I don't know what to tell you. You're not a fan. Yes. Yeah. Well, even if you, <laughs> we're watching Superman from 1978, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World from 2010, and Spider-Man from 2002. And so if you're still trying to hide from spoilers, God bless you for doing so well so far. And maybe you should turn this <laughs> podcast off, but I'm not going to worry about spoilers. 
and I'm not going to worry about any revealing any secret elements of any of the stories here. So, with that said, let's go ahead and get started with our first movie. Why are you? I'm sorry? I mean, uh, why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. Alright, so kicking things off for us is the 1978 action drama science fiction flick by Richard Donner, Superman the Movie. Uh, Superman is the first real big budget superhero movie uh, with big name actors in it. Um, and it tells the, you know, the story that everybody knows and loves in America of the boy alien from Krypton who's sent to Earth as his planet falls apart. Uh, he has superpowers on Earth because, well in this movie because of the difference in density. Um, of his body. I guess usually it's the yellow sun. Um, he's raised in Smallville, Kansas by the Kents. He's taught to hide his powers by them. Eventually he leaves. Uh, his, he goes to a fortress of solitude where his father has set up all these things for him to learn to become the right kind of man, that the, the right kind of hero that Earth needs. And then about an hour and 15 minutes into the movie, Clark goes to <laughs> Metropolis to work undercover as a reporter for the Daily Planet. Uh, the main villain of the movie is his nemesis, Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman. Uh, Luthor in this one is a real estate mogul, um, almost Donald Trumpish, And he just sees Superman standing in his way to uh, breaking California in half and taking the new coast as his own. Uh, the plot is hatched to take out Superman so he can do this. Superman has to save California, somewhat save the world. And crazy hijinks ensue, and it's... Um, it's the first Superman movie. So, with that quick summary in hand, Bennett, why don't you tell us what you thought of this one? Yeah, so I'll kind of come clean here. Um, I don't like Superman. Um, he has always been one of my least favorite characters. I, until this, don't think I've ever read any Superman comics other than the very first Superman comic. Um and that's just because I think he's stupid. Um, but, um, so, and the only two Superman movies I have seen until this was Superman Returns and Man of Steel. This was my first introduction to Christopher Reeves. Uh, it's something that's been a long time coming. Uh, but it was just, I couldn't get over the fact that I think Superman is stupid. Um, and not, not to get off track here. But those two movies don't do, good, though, didn't it? don't do a great job of representing his character. Like, his character is stupid, but then his character is even more stupid in those two movies. Um, <laughs> especially Superman Returns. God, I freaking... I can't stand that movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So, um, this is my first time seeing Christopher Reeves... Um, and I was very surprised with how much I enjoyed this. Like once I got over the fact that I was like, okay, accept it. It's Superman. Let's move on. Um, just the first things that I noticed right off the bat, um, the casting for, as you said, the first big budget superhero movie, like the people who they were able to get in this, like Gene Hackman, Marlon Brando, um, hey, hey, young uh, Terrence Stamp, who I was stoked to see 
um, has Zod, which, before we go on, does Zod come back in another superhero Superman movie? Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, they do. The mirror people, they come back in. I think it's the next one, actually, Superman 2. Okay, okay, good, because Terrence Stamp is the man, and when they threw him into the Phantom Zone, I was like, all right, he has to come back. Um, anyways, so. Already you have our differences here, because I call them the mirror people. <laughs> the mirror people. And you've got this Phantom Zone moniker, so. Yeah. <laughs> you're, getting all, you're getting all angles here, listeners. <laughs> Sorry, all right, but, um, anyways. But about this actual movie, not any of the other projects. Um, cinematography I thought was fantastic, um, especially some of those shots of uh, Smallville and Kansas and all of, like the Kent family farm and everything like that I thought were beautiful. Um, a lot of the effects were really impressive, given that this is a movie that was made, you know, in nineteen what was it seventy eight? Yeah, yeah. Um, effects were really good. Um, I, don't know, I was surprised. I have a lot of questions about it, and I'm hoping that you can answer some of them because there was just some major parts of the movie where I was just very confused what was going on. Buddy, <laughs> I don't have your answers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone does. Nobody uh, does. <laughs> but what I really appreciated about this was that it was a superhero movie, yes, but because this is like the first installment in what has become such a huge genre, it doesn't lend itself to just being a superhero movie. Like, I've heard so many people complain about recent superhero movies where it's like, I had to watch 25 minutes of the movie before I saw Spider-Man in his you know outfit or before I saw Batman in the cow or something like that. This movie, and I checked, not until I think it was an hour and 20 minutes in, did mm -hmm. we even see him in costume? Yeah. I mean, I guess we saw him fly off from the Fortress of Solitude that count, yeah. at one point. But yeah, doesn't count. He doesn't start doing Superman stuff until more than halfway through this movie. Um, and I'm actually a huge fan of that. I think that that made it a lot more character-driven. Um, thought that that was interesting. Um, so yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Um I want to hear what you thought about it before I start asking some of my questions. <laughs> um, but so you just go ahead and we'll get to that later. All right. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm always kind of impressed by this movie. It's not, I don't think of it as the best movie or even the best superhero movie or anything like that, but you know, it, it always holds my attention. Um, and it, it does that early, it, you know, it starts that early on with, um, what I think is probably the most compelling stuff in the movie is this, the stuff on, um, the home planet of Krypton. Yes. With Marlon Brando's Jor-El. Um, mm -hmm. You've got this, you know, they, they did a really good job production design there. We're making it stark, but also making it seem technologically advanced and alien from our world. Um, they use crystals for everything and that kind of stuff. And it's it's really neat. They do um, they do animation uh, background uh, backlighting um, with, uh, with codolith negatives, um, which is something that was uh, used a couple years later on Tron. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the original Tron, but... Uh, you kind of see these suits in uh, Krypton that are backlit and everything. Yeah, and that's yeah. really neat. They use kind of the same effect on the title swoops, which I don't know if those reach out and grab you like they do me, but every time I sit there and I think, how did they do this in 1978? Yeah. We're talking about a movie that in 1977, 76 is really when things actually, digital actually started being a thing that could be used, but none of that is used in this movie. Yeah. Everything in this movie is analog. And so they actually did. I'll, you know, I'll 
I'll ask, I'll ask, uh, I'll share the link on Twitter to kind of how that's done, but it's, it's really neat. But hey, trust me, they were impressed that they could do it too yeah. because that was the longest title sequence I have ever <laughs> yeah. seen in my life. And that's the thing; it, it's a long title sequence. It's a long introduction of the movie, like you said. It's an hour and twenty minutes of introduction to this character, basically. But it all kind of works because mm-hmm. of how well executed it is. Um, you have John Williams' incredible, incredible theme song for Superman. Oh, that yeah. I think I think it's probably his best song until Jurassic Park came out. Um, you know, and then. So, like I said, it, it kind of reaches out and grabs you in a way that movies from that era weren't doing. And so I could see why it was uh, quite a successful movie. Um, you know, as far as the character-driven stuff, I think it is it, it is a character-driven movie for the first half of it. And then it's I, not. <laughs> yeah, I look at it as two different movies. It, the first yeah. half of it is, we're going to introduce you to Superman. Everybody knows who Superman already is, but we're going to introduce you to Superman. It's not his origin story, really, because there's not any of the, you know, what we'd see in later comic book movies of figuring out his costume. That just sort of appears. There's not, we don't see any of the him learning how to be a superhero. That all is time-lapsed out. Um, in fact, we don't even see Christopher Reeve until about 50 minutes into the movie. Yeah, We yeah. see a young Clark Kent, played by Jeff East, who doesn't really get any credit for the movie, unfortunately. Yeah, and I thought he was fantastic, Yeah, he did too. a good job. Um you know, but they, they, instead of doing all of that stuff, they build Superman's character really not even on him as a person, but more on, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, just kind of the idea of the great American hero. Um, you know, you see him constantly surrounded by wheat fields in middle America. <laughs> you get the long speeches from, from Pa Kent, which that is his name in the movie. Is <laughs> on Paul, the credit, yeah, Pa, pa Kent. Kent. Played by Glenn, Glenn Ford. <laughs> They called him Jonathan, but nah, uh, credited his paw. His paw can't. You know, it's it's the American idealism, and that is what Superman embodies, especially in this movie. Um, And they use that as the character driving of the story. So yeah, I mean, I really do, I do enjoy this movie for the most part. The second half is, um, I don't know, it's interesting. I don't really enjoy that part of it. It's long. It's, it's, well... Lex Luthor is the villain, and I think Gene Hackman um, was a terrible choice. I think making him sort of this eccentric, lunatic fella who lives underground with surrounded by stupid henchmen was a, was a bad choice. Yeah. I have looked at some of the superhero material. I guess Superman Returns did the same thing with Kevin Spacey, but so you may not be aware. But it's Lex Luthor doesn't have henchmen generally. No, um, no, absolutely he's, he's, not. He's generally a independent either wealthy businessman uh masquerading as a philanthropist that kind of thing you know he's usually working subversively but in this movie you have gene hackman playing a hacky version of lex Luthor, yeah, who's yeah. constantly outwitted by his own stupidity really um and he doesn't come in until the last 45 minutes of the movie where the story switches from a character drama about superman um, and about lois lane and about the city of metropolis and about america it switches to kind of just an episode of what you might think of a, like a comic book TV show would be. Yes, it's forty. Absolutely. It's about 45 minutes long. That's where the, the villain's plot comes to fruition. <laughs> like, that's Which, where it starts. His plot makes yeah. zero sense. And that's where we'll get to some of the problems with this movie. <laughs> there are these really, this mess of incongruous time spans and these weird, <laughs> unnecessary leaps in logic. 
and just a outright, total like, lack of understanding of how radiation works. Characters disappear, <laughs> like <it's, laughs> yeah. it becomes this like lower lower class movie, and I think maybe that speaks to the fact that Hollywood didn't know how to treat comic books yet. Oh yeah, yeah. But why don't you go ahead and I think that. We'll get to some of the questions, probably. Well, one of my biggest things was I was going to talk about the mistreatment of Lex Luthor. Because for as stupid as I think Superman is, I think Lex Luthor is a dope supervillain. Like, and it's so funny to me that it is someone who Superman struggles so much with. Because the traditional idea of Lex Luthor is that he doesn't have superpowers. Like, and there's been some, you know, renditions where he's been given a, like, super suit that's, like, laced with uh, Kryptonium and all this stuff like that. Um, but what I love about him is he does have this, uh, like, almost this charismatic appeal that allows him to be an, a sufficient foe for Superman. Um, and you didn't get that here because, like, he's only really interacting with two characters the entire yeah. movie. Um one of which was a stupid henchman, and the other was this... played well by Ned Beatty. <laughs> as, enough, as well, like, as... they cast Ned Beatty to be the stupid henchman. Yeah, very strange, but yeah. Um, and this like hypersexualized chick who like I don't get her character one bit. It's Tess Marker. Um, woof, and so <laughs> I was very confused by that. But then I was also just confused there was so much that was left unexplained mm-hmm. um which may be good maybe bad i feel like a lot of comic book movies are starting to get bogged down in their own lore um mm-hmm. you saw that a lot in age of ultron um i thought which is the first one that comes to mind with there's a scene where thor is trying to explain what the infinity stones are which like for people like me who read the comics that's you know no big deal but like that it's just some weird stuff, and it really was a dull point of the movie, just because you're like, oh, okay, stop. Like, there's just too much jargon. And so this movie kind of went the opposite way of like, no, he's going to throw this green crystal, and Fortress <laughs> of Solitude's going to come up. Because I thought, like, is that Kryptonium? No, oh, no, it's like a, a seed for a city. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what that was. And then also, as you said, some of the timeline just made no sense. Like, Jor-El, or the fake version of Jor-El, um... Or, like, artificial intelligence, I guess, is how they described it in Man of Steel. I don't really know what they did on this one. Yeah, basically in the Fortress of Solitude, just for the listening audience who somehow haven't seen Superman from 1978, it's kind of slipped out of the consciousness. But he, <laughs> um, once he leaves Smallville, Kansas, Superman um, finds the, is shown the spaceship that he came in. And it's got these crystals in it. And they lead him to um, uh, near the North Pole, I guess. Um they lead him up there, and it's the crystals from Krypton, programmed by his father, who I believe was like a chief scientist on that, Krypton. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's um, been his traditional representation. Yeah. Uh, these crystals formed a fortress of solitude, and it's just this kind of big crystal castle type of thing. And this is where Superman would live for ten or so years, I guess. Um, and in that fortress of solitude was an artificial intelligence version hologram of his father, um, played very casually by Marlon Brando. <laughs> um, I read that he memorized zero lines for oh, this Brando movie. was He read the, everything. He was like a huge chunk of the budget, too. Oh, I have no doubt. You know, he wouldn't do multiple takes. He was just... He, Brando was... Brando was an ass. 
good actor in his time, but he stopped really caring by the time this movie came out. <laughs> definitely didn't care about a sci-fi movie. But, um, yeah, in this Fortress of Solitude, he, you know, talking to his dad there, he can ask questions, and that's where he learns to become the the hero that the the people of Earth need. So, that yeah. that's... The Fortress of Solitude stuff, it's all... It's all done very, I, I think, um, dramatically. Yeah and, yeah, and it's done well. It leaves out stuff, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily leave out stuff that you need to know. <laughs> um, but then they kind of try to carry that tactic into Lex Luthor yeah. and his plot and the actual story of the movie. And, it, you know, this is back when a movie, an action movie like this, couldn't be that long. So, you know, we clock in at a, two hours, 20 minutes or so, which... With how the pacing of the movie is at the beginning, it probably needed to be like a three-hour movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to really get to where they got to at the end. So you end up leaving out a lot of stuff. For uh, um, example, um, the ending set piece is that Lex sets off some uh, atomic bombs. <laughs> and <laughs> one of them um, takes, you know, hits the San Andreas Fault. And in this really breakneck moment, probably four or five minutes long, Superman is flying to New Jersey to stop another atomic bomb, flying through the Earth's crust, coming up in the San Andreas Fault, repairing the ground in the San Andreas Fault, <laughs> um, going to the Hoover Dam to save Jimmy Olsen, saving uh, a lady, saving all these people, random people back in Metropolis. It's just back and forth yeah, with Superman yeah. doing all this really good stuff. But it doesn't really make any sense of time and, and space. For knowing that Lois Lane is out there somewhere, yeah. no sense of urgency. No like, sense of urgency. <laughs> he like helped people at one point, and then someone is like being helped up, and he stops. Sir, is that man all right? Guess what, Superman? You already did your work. <laughs> Get the hell out of there, because I think they got this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it gets real weird, and then we have to talk about the... We have to talk about it. We Yes, so... Uh, there was no lack of bravado um, when they delved into Superman source material because they went straight to time travel, which makes me sick. So that's what I was going to ask. Is this the, the time travel scene at the end? Lois Lane dies. Superman somehow couldn't save her. He could do everything else, but he couldn't save Lois. She dies, and so Superman goes out in space, changes the rotation of the Earth. The Earth apparently works like a cassette tape. <laughs> you didn't know that? Yeah, I didn't realize that. But by spinning the Earth the other direction, <laughs> it went it reversed time, but only for certain things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it comes back. Lois Lane is alive again. The Hoover Dam is repaired. The movie ends like four minutes later. But, but here's... <laughs> yeah, so go on. That That's So that's he saves Lois Lane at the end. I'm cool. Like, whatever. That's awesome. However, he only reversed it to, like, the beginning of when he was urgently running around saving people, right? Or did he... Re because I'm so confused as to, like... Did he reverse it to where a nuke never occurred? Because, it like, it seemed like nothing had happened. But then she talked about an earthquake. So was there just a random earthquake that occurred on this new timeline? Or was... Did the nuke actually... It, that I don't know that part. Exactly. I was just like, I paused yeah. it and was trying to figure it out. Could not, and just moved on. <laughs> and I think that's where we get into that. This movie did not view Superman as a superhero, um, working within the the realms of re the realm of reality. 
it viewed him, and they even say it um, at least once in the movie, they viewed him as a god. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Superman was just somebody who could, by whatever means he needed to, do what accomplish whatever he needed to accomplish. And so when he set the world back in, back in time, he did it in such a way that certain events hadn't taken place. It, it's it's really strange. It's not explained. They don't, you know, they, they kind of invent this new reality, but they don't really care to live in it or anything like that. <laughs> um, and so it's, it, that's where the movie really comes off the rails. And that's, just to talk about it's, this is where I think Hollywood, like I said, didn't really understand what to do with comic book movies. Yeah. It, ca- it either comes off the rails there or when we get a 10-minute inner dialogue with Lois Lane. I'm not sure which part. Oh, see, now I like the inner dialogue, the monologue with Lois Lane. Okay, so I, I wasn't a huge fan. What I do, Now what I want to see, though, is I am dying to see a movie from the significant other's perspective. Yeah, because that'd be good. What, what I, cause I am not a fan of inner dialogue anyways. Like, I generally don't like it in movies. Um, I just think it's kind of cheap sometimes and is, like, usually something that you could show. Like, I didn't, like, learn anything else about how she felt about Superman through the inner dialogue. Well, and this is why I like the inner monologue is that this is where they explain Superman. This is really his origin story. Mm-hmm. It's And it's it's... In typical Superman, or in the best way you can treat Superman, it's not Superman explaining who he is, and it's not really any events explaining who he is. It's somebody looking at Superman, seeing him as an ideal, and just kind of going gushing about him. Yeah, okay. She actually has this line at near the end of it, uh, who are you, what are you? And then she says, why are you? And it's kind of this really weird philosophical thing that you don't see in most comic book superhero movies. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of left on its own. And then some of the next dialogue is Superman doing his famous truth, justice, American way line. <laughs> Which you know, th- made me vomit. <laughs> yeah, it's an awful line, but that is, that's Superman. He's the romantic idealism of middle America, godlike personification. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see that all throughout this movie, that this is the ideal America of the 1970s that has gone through hell and back. <laughs> The Nixon administration and the riots and all that other stuff. I knew it was a 1970s movie when it opened up. The very first thing you get is talking about how trusted the Daily Planet is. I was like, exactly, this would never happen. Like, no. this media source is trustworthy, and that's the opening of the movie. Y'all. Well, and that's the thing. I was, it's Superman is a journalist. Lois Lane is a journalist. Those are the two heroes of the movie. Yeah, are the yeah. journalists. They're not the skeezy guys trying to get a, a busted-up headline like you see in Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, can you hear my dog talking? Yeah, I can. This. It's all good. We have a third guest. He will not um, stop squeaking this toy. The dog thinks that media is good. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you get this toy? All right. All right. The good guys are the, you know, they're the journalists. They're and then we have the bad guys on the other side who is a wealthy aristocrat with all the weapons. You know, this is the person this is what yeah, happened yeah. out of uh, you know, deep throat. This is what happened out of you know, investigative journalism and out of mm. civil rights journalism. You know, these are the the good guys became these people and they brought America back to its ideal in a sense. And so I you know, I like that part of the movie. I like how that works and I think they handled that really well. I think just when it comes down to making the comic book story, they just kind of phoned it in. No, I, I agree. And 
at the end of the day, and I think what a, a huge complaint of a lot of people who are critics of the superhero genre now is that movies are really good at handling the comic book part, but not so good at handling the character part. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's easy, like, and that's a frustrating thing for me as a fan, is like it's really easy to appeal to me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, you throw in some, like, Easter eggs about stuff that I know I'm one of the only people in the theater who knows about, like, I'm in. Because I'm like, okay, you made this for me. However, that shouldn't be the goal. It should be, we're making a good movie. Oh, wait, it's also about a superhero. Not, we're making a good superhero movie. And so, if you're going to err on either way, I think, from a movie perspective and, like, showing people that this is a genre that could be successful this was the right way to go. Hmm. So just real quick, and then we'll wrap this up. How does this compare to your kind of, your understanding of the source material? Okay. So, um, I did like a just real fast, like breakdown of a bunch of source material before, um, we did the podcast. Cause you had said we wanted to talk about, um, how this compares to the source material. And as I said, not super familiar with Superman. So I did like a crash course, um, in Superman stories, Um, and I like that this is very much like within 70s Superman, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause the current adaptation or, you know, representation of Superman is entirely different. They've made him edgier. They've made him not so old fashioned because they're trying, cause they like, he is an outdated character in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, He embraces an ideal that is old fashioned and not shared by many who are partakers of the genre now. Um, And so I like that it fits in there. Um, And I think it like, it did what it was supposed to do with the source material. Um, The very first Superman comic is not an origin. It is, him being Superman. And so I, I like that, that yes, you get an origin story and I'm with you, Brett. Like I would have watched an entire movie just about Jor-El and Krypton. Mm-hmm. Like even if, uh, Marlon Brando did kind of phone it in a little bit. Like <laughs> I've always thought that is interesting. Like I want to see this story, not really Superman because I have problems with the realism of it, but Krypton, like this is interesting to me. Um, to watch a planet as it's dying tear itself apart as well um, is, I just think, kind of fascinating. Um, but they didn't focus on that a lot. They focused on exactly what you said, the American ideals um, of, like, you know, truth, justice, liberty, all stuff like that. Um, he had, you know, a great moment of weakness with uh, uh, Kryptonium, which is, like, you know, what, you're, what Superman's supposed to do. Um, or kryptonite, I'm sorry. Uh, I think I've said kryptonium the whole time. Kryptonite. You have, and I would just assume maybe it's something else. But no, no, it's, kryptonite. It's kryptonite as far That's as me being stupid. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and so uh, he had the moment of weakness with kryptonite, and he killed it with the ladies. So like, I think they hit <laughs> yeah. you know, the big things. Um, so in terms of source material, I think it checks out just fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, my closing shot on it is... Superman's kind of an inane hero. Um, he's he's so invincible that the only there's not really an antagonist for him. No, absolutely. You know, any not. anything that comes up against him is you know it's 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 just a flick of the wrist away from him beating him. So there's no real drama in the enemy. 
Um, you know, the only compelling antagonist you could really have for Superman is Superman himself, and they don't really explore that in this movie at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's you know my biggest disappointment with the movie. But overall, I think it's a it's a really well done first shot at comic book adaptations. Um, it's an important movie in comic book history, um, and it's it's definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. Just go into it knowing it's not really going to be like what you might think of as the comic book genre now. Absolutely. All right, well, I think that wraps up the first movie, so let's move on to numero dos. All right. They can be a great people, Kal-El. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good. I have sent them you. My only son. Alright, and our second movie for the week was Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, directed by Edgar Wright in 2010. Um, the story follows Scott Pilgrim, who's a young man in Toronto, Canada. Um, he's in an unknown little band called Sex bob um, <laughs> uh, you know, mixing the video game genre in there. Uh, Scott Pilgrim, he's had, he's had his trouble with women in recent past, but he becomes enthralled by a girl literally straight from his dreams named Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, Ramona and Scott start to see each other, but Scott soon learns that he must defeat Ramona's seven evil exes. The story, as you can tell, gets pretty surreal from there. <laughs> uh, so if he wants to be with her, he has to defeat these seven evil exes um, in highly stylized fight fashion. Um, and all this while navigating past his own um, old relationships and the background of the Battle of the Bands tournament. So like I said, it's, it's highly stylized, it's supernatural, it has a minimalist tone to it, oddly enough, and mixed in there with an extravagance that, you know, you don't really see much. Um, I picked this movie because it follows to the shot the source material mm -hmm. um, by Brian, o Brian Lee O'Malley. It's a graphic novel series. Um, it, it's... It's kind of uncanny when you look at the uh, the the actual comic books or the graphic novels. I'm not. I'm gonna call them comic books, Bennett. I don't know if that offends you. Nah, nah, okay. I'm not. I, I won't make a huge deal of it. Some people okay. might, but they're yeah. stupid. But the comic books, graphic novels, eh, same. You know, I get the distinction, but I'm not gonna distinguish. <laughs> Just do it to piss I'm, people I'm, off. Now. I'm above it. <laughs> Did you hear that, fans? I'm above it. <laughs> But no, but the you know there's this clear respect by the people who made this movie, the production designer Edgar Wright, um, the writers, and everybody else. There's a clear respect and love for the source material, the shooting, the dialogue. They're all drawn directly from the pages. You know, it's not just some director who got pitched a good story and made it into his own thing, kind of like what Superman was. You know, it's it's a telling of what was on the page put onto the screen. It's, I, you know, I really do like it, though, just beyond that reasoning. It's it's spectacularly put together. You know, it's, when you talk about drawing a comic, you know, it's not, it's obviously not easy to draw. I can't draw a straight line. But 
when you are drawing, you know how to draw. You can draw exactly what you want. You can put any angles or anything into each frame and any dialogue into each thing how you want it. But when you're making a movie, all that has to be built. And what this movie does is it accomplishes the comic book art in a real world style. Uh, Sin City tried to do the same thing, but Sin City was all a green screen movie. Um, Scott Pilgrim has a lot of real set pieces, and it has it uses a lot of shallow depth shots and a lot of perspe forced perspective techniques that you would use in drawing. Um, you know, there's CGI work; it's ever present, but it's used to accent the movie, kind of like the onomatopoeia stuff that you would see in a comic book, the the old Batman movies, like Pow yeah, and, Zap yeah. and that kind of stuff. You see that a lot, and it just enhances it; it doesn't encompass it. So, you know, stylistically, I think this is the most comic book-like movie, maybe since, like, Dick Tracy. Um, and it's, it's, a much, it's a much, much better movie than Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, beyond that, and I'll get into it, you know, I really like the themes of the movie. You know, this is not a movie I, I will watch a lot because it's, it is very loud. It's very noisy and boisterous, and that's not typically my kind of movie. But I respect the hell out of this movie, so... Yeah, so I was super excited when you said that we were going to be watching this. Um... This is, so first off, not wasn't familiar with the source material the first time I watched this, uh, the, but immediately after the first time I watched this, got very acquainted with it because I thought that this movie was brilliant. I love Edgar Wright. I think all his stuff is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just think this movie is very beautiful. I think the comparison between this and Sin City is very apt because it, they do a lot of the same stuff. Um However, Sin City was always going to be much more difficult to put on the screen um, than Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was. Um, not saying that like we should give Sin City a break because there's obviously some parts of that that are incredibly dull. But um, what I like about this is this was the perfect material to bring to a shot-to-shot -shot movie format, I think. Um, it's, the drawing in it is not complex. Um, it's awesome. But it isn't the like complex stuff that you would see in like Frank Miller's Sin City and stuff like that, um, and it's just a such a interesting story to bring these superhero. Um, I think of a lot of like Street Fighter and stuff like that, kind of into a real world scenario, um, is I think a brilliant idea and it works super well. Um, I. I think this movie is hilarious. Um, I've seen it tons of times now since being introduced to it a few years back. Um, and it's always fun to come back to. I think Michael Sarah is brilliant. Um, but I also think that the supporting actors in this, uh, like uh, from Chris Evans as one of the <laughs> evil exes, oh, yeah. which I think is just beautiful. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Ramona Flowers is phenomenal. Um, I'm a big Allison Pill fan. Uh, it's just like up and down the board. Um, yeah, let me, let's let's talk about the actors. I mean, there's, you know, not to be, not to be, this is not a crass thing, but there's so many beautiful and talented women in this movie. Yes, like, absolutely. It is, it is overrun. Yeah. With, like you said, Allison Pill is. I'm. She's she's a favorite of mine. I don't. I'm not going to talk much more about her, just for fear of embarrassing myself. <laughs> But, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is so emotive, so strong a character. Um, Anna Kendrick's in the movie, and that's, you know, you could kind of see a movie on that strength alone. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Aubrey Plaza, who is, Aubrey like, Plaza, I'm yeah. only familiar with her stuff on Parks and Rec until this, and she's amazing. I tell you what, though, like, 
other than Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Ellen Wong as Night's Child might be my, one of my favorite performances in the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, Mae Whitman does a crazy good job. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of um, of, uh, of, of his ex-girlfriend. Of, uh, oh, yeah. Um, um, her name is uh, Brie Larson. Yeah, Brie she's Larson, fantastic yes, as well. Brie Adams, yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. And then you have, you know, the on the guy side of things, Jason Schwartzman is always perfect. <laughs> yeah. He's he's flawless and everything. Uh Kieran Culkin's incredible. Fantastic. As yeah. the gay roommate Wallace. Um, he crushes it. You know, everybody in the movie does a good job. Um, it hmm. Except for Michael Sarah, which is I think where we disagree. Okay. Uh I you know, I didn't buy him as, as this Scott Pilgrim character at all. Um, especially looking back at the at the comic books, uh, to me, everybody else was their character. Michael Sarah was still just Michael Sarah from <laughs> Arrested Development or from yeah, the commercials, yeah. you know, or from real life, you know. To me, he, <laughs> oh yeah, there, I don't he, think there's a difference. <laughs> yeah, there's not. You know, he's not acting; he's just saying lines as himself. And I don't know. To me, he was a little bit of a drag on the movie. So but, this, yeah, and that's I think because I was introduced to the movie first. The version of Scott Pilgrim that I see in my head is Michael Sarah. <laughs> Him in the comics, you're right, is very different. He does seem to have his stuff together a little bit more. Um, he does seem to like have a bit more bravado that's not just kind of like this faked kind of, I don't know. It is it is very different, and I will agree with you that it's that's probably the part that is the plus, least... Plus for us to believe that he comes from the same lineage as Anna Kendrick and that Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Alison Pill and Brie Larson are all interested in him at some point. But And see, yeah. I, and I think that's why I love this so much is because just like from the perspective of like, this guy is a loser. Like you can't picture like him being the lady killer type, but the fact that he is still posed like as this character, I think is one of the funniest things that Edgar Wright does in this movie. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's, um, it and plays into the teenage dream of the movie. Yeah. You yeah. know, you get all the video game imagery and the, the music coming to life and all that. And that is a, that's a fantasy of a, of a, of a teenage guy. And, you know, I think that that plays into that, mm -hmm. but Sarah, Sarah annoyed me throughout the movie and maybe it's a jealousy thing. I just need to get over, but <laughs> But, you know, and, and then Chris Evans, I guess I should mention. Chris Evans just, like you said, it cracks me up to see Chris Evans in this movie. So every time I watch this, I'm more and more convinced that he, to prepare for this movie, only watched Ben Stiller and Zoolander <laughs> over and over and over. That is the only thing I think of when watching either that or Ben Stiller and Dodgeball. Like, one of those two characters, I can't decide which one he's more like. No, you know what I think it is? And I... I, I I got Ben Stiller too. Just real quick, he plays Lucas Lee, who is an actor now and used to be a skater, and he's um, the the second or third ex of Ramona. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think second. Second that sounds yep. right. Yeah, and he's just this over the top, like lunatic, egotistical maniac, um, delivering all these crazy lines about how good he is, ordering <laughs> his stuntmen to do his work for him. You know, he's. It's, it's incredible because this is supposed to be Captain America and it's not. <laughs> it's it's the opposite and it's awesome. But I like I said, I got Ben Stiller too. But I got it. It it, it reminded me of Ben Stiller in the beginning of Tropic Thunder. 
Okay, yeah. With the little, the, you know, the little in action movies, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, real cocksure about himself and everything. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you're right. He might have studied under old Ben. But. Well, and what I think is so cool is, like, as you said, Chris Evans, obviously Captain America. But then you also have Brandon Routh, who played in Superman Returns, which I won't get bad about that again, <laughs> and is now Adam on the Arrow Flash TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, like, a cool, like, superhero call-out there. Um, you also have Mae Whitman, who was, obviously, Anne in Arrested Development with Michael Sarah. Um yeah, uh, egg. Uh, but um, <laughs> so I like that too, it, and I think that's always entertaining is when the casting choice is made because yes, they'll play this character well, but also because like people are going to see that we're kind of like giving them a wink here too. Yeah. Um, and it's a movie. The reason I, but the reason I respect this movie just beyond the cast and the style and the, you know, the, it's a lot of work that went into the the photography of this movie. And oh yeah. I, I yeah. always respect that, but the. This is, you know, this is a movie that that takes the idea of its own universe that it creates very seriously, mm-hmm. and it just runs with it in a way that, you know, Superman, as an example, never did. You know, it's got these own, it's got its own rules, and it plays by them, and it doesn't apologize for them, and it doesn't try to justify them as somehow working in the real world. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, yeah. you get a lot of comic book movies that try to justify themselves in reality. You know, try to explain how this guy could be a Batman or. You know, and, and still be in the real world. But this one just sets its own ground rules and lives by them. And, mm-hmm. and it, it works well on that front. Yeah, it's very honest. And, like, yeah. And it's a funny way to describe a movie like this that does have, like, a bunch of, you know, dream sequence scenes that are strange. I love how the aspect ratio is constantly changing throughout the movie. It's going from, like, the wide screen with, you know, black bars on top to the full screen. I think that. That work is just really funny and entertaining. Um, But it is an incredibly honest movie. Um, And I think that the story at the end, like, the way that they keep pulling new lessons out of what you, like, or ideals from what you think has already been exhausted, I think is super impressive and a really good testament to the storytelling that Edgar Wright does here. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you obviously have to give Brian O'Malley all the credit, too, because... This is his stuff, but um, to have, like, I don't know, the guts to stick to that um, is, I think, really makes this movie pretty endearing, I think. Do you know how much O'Malley was involved? Uh, So I do not um, at all, actually. All right, we'll we'll move on from that. (laughs) No, but, you know, it is a a really cool story. It's a good story, and it's got kind of a, a real mature theme for such a trippy kind of teenage style mm-hmm. movie you know you have on the surface him fighting just fighting ex-lovers but the implication is, is pretty clear painted in real broad strokes that you know this is the, a, a stylized dramatized version of a common life experience you know kind of put together for our own consumption mm-hmm. you know it's a story about relationships and how the intimacy of a relationship or even uh, the decision to have feelings for one person kind of stick with you and carry into all of your related relationships you know, like Ramona's exes carried into hers. You know, they don't really go away, and you and your partner can, you know, sometimes feel like you're doing battle with those ghosts or memories, and sometimes violently so. But, you know, the answer is ultimately not to defeat those memories. Yeah, yeah. But to accept them as part of who you and your story and your partner's story are and carry on together. And it's really poignant, and they put all that together throughout the movie and comes together in the climactic scene with Jason Swartzman and the... 
pulling the sword, the right sword out of his chest and everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's done highly stylized in a humorous way, but it's this really poignant story and this really moving kind of life experience that we can all, you know, relate to. I think what is what has made this movie such a... I don't want to say cult classic because it has only been out for five years, but it is very popular within like a group of people. Like this didn't, you know, do wonders in the box office or anything like that. And I don't think it was made to, um, but it targets a very specific audience and takes them very seriously. And I think that is something that a lot of people haven't ventured to do with the at the end of the day, target audience for comic book movies. Because the thing is now is like, how can we get everyone to buy into this idea of a superhero? How can we get, you know, everyone from the comic book nerd to the comic book nerd's mom and their little sister and their friend who all he does is sports and all this stuff like that. And it's like, how can we introduce this concept to everyone? Whereas this movie is intensely focused on like, the people who get these references that they're making, who understand like that they use Legend of Zelda songs in here and that they are like pulling from like it starts at the very beginning with the eight bit opening with the universal logo and everything like that. And I think that's why I appreciate it so much is it is absolutely geared towards a specific audience and doesn't take their focus off of them for the entire movie. Definitely. Definitely. Cool. Well, I think that does it for Scott Pilgrim. So let's move on to our final movie of the week. All right. Whatever life holds in store for me, I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Okay, and so our last movie of the week is Spider-Man from 2002, directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, Spider-Man is the story of Peter Parker. He's a nerdy, nerd, a nerdy, a nerdy sort of sad high school senior um, who gains like uh, super spider powers of many different sorts after being bitten by a lab experiment uh, arachnid. Uh, Peter goes through the process of becoming a hero, failing many times in many ways on that path. He's challenged by the Green Goblin, um, Norman Osborn who is the scorned, wealthy weapons manufacturer dad of Peter's best friend, Harry, played by James Franco. Um, there's a love triangle with Mary Jane Watson. Um, there's a lot of high-flying action. There's a lot of teenage angst. Um, and it was a huge, huge hit. Uh, so, Bennett, why don't you go and tell us what you think of Spider-Man? Yeah, so, um, a kid growing up, the first comic I ever read was a Spider-Man comic. Um, this was the first superhero movie I ever watched. Um, just, and I think I had like seen some like, you know, 1980s, 90s Batman stuff when my dad was watching it, but didn't really care. Um, but this was the first one that like really sold me on 
superheroes. And I think it did that for a lot of people. Um, and this is really where you can trace the origins of how su- the superhero genre has grown so much to both this and the first X-Men movie. And I was expecting you to choose one of them um, because I think both of them did huge things for advancing what this genre could do. Um, and so this is like a classic for me. Like Whereas like 1978 Superman is like the classic for the genre, this is my classic. Um, and I loved getting to go back and rewatch it. I'd been actually talking for a while with some friends. Like I wanted to go back and rewatch Spider-Man one and two, um, just to really appreciate what Sam Raimi was able to do, um, with pretty much like, if you think about it, like in terms of Marvel, this is the biggest character they have. Um, you could argue Wolverine a little bit, but, Spider-Man absolutely is their number one property. Um, and is other than Superman, Batman, like the biggest superhero in the world, at least from my understanding of it. Um, so to be able to take this, a character that is very understandable um, in terms of he's not super rich. He's not, you know, uh, this mega genius. Like he is smart, but he is he's very understandable and you can sympathize with him, especially, um, people who have grown up like loving this genre. And a lot of times that doesn't come with being the cool kid on campus. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of times this Peter Parker character is you, the reader and the watcher. Um, and I think that that's what makes him so successful. And I think that this is a beautiful adaptation of his character. There are some major issues with it as a lover of the source material. Um, but at the same time, like you have to appreciate, I think other than the immediate sequel, Spider-Man two, this is the best job that any movie has ever done at accurately representing Peter Parker as he is in the comics. Um, and so even just for that alone, I love this movie. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't sound great. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I I don't I don't love this movie. Mm-hmm. Um it irritates me in a lot of ways, but it's 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 impossible when talking about the comic book genre not to pick this movie to talk about it. Because you know, comic books were our comic book movies were kind of something that would pop up over the years um you know, since Superman here and there. And you would see trends, and you kind of started to see a trend with Blade. Blade was super successful. Um, back before that, you had Dark Man, which was not really a comic book property, but but is a comic book movie. Um, and The Shadow and all those others. You know, they, they had tried to do these things. Batman had been successful, but there was not the comic book blockbuster. Every comic book movie is going to make hundreds of million dollars assumption. You know, that didn't exist until, like you said, X-Men, but really... Until this movie came. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this movie is, in so, so many ways, the boilerplate for all the comic book movies that have come out since 2002. Mm-hmm. You know, all the Avengers movies, even to an extent some of the Chris Nolan Batman movies, uh, Superman Returns borrows elements from it. You know, it it, it hit a chord um, when it came out, and I think, and I'll get into this, you know, a lot of that has to do with when it came out, which was a few months after September 11th. Um, 
but it hit a chord that that resonates even still today and so it is an important film and it's not a bad movie um it's just not one that that i care for that much my favorite scene in the movie is when uh, macho man randy savage playing bone saw <laughs> bone saw <laughs> brilliantly <laughs> takes a chair to peter parker and his spider-man suit uh, over and over again that's my favorite part of the movie <laughs> um, which is also one of the most problematic scenes of the movie <laughs> for the spider-man character and begins what is a long line of selective spidey sense that spider-man has <laughs> well yeah and i think that's i think i, I kind of wonder i don't i'm not all that familiar with the source material i've picked up bits and pieces here and there from people and i read a lot of articles and check out wikipedia a good bit you know, and it doesn't seem like Sam Raimi was all that careful about, um, or whoever wrote it, I'm not going to blame it all on Sam, um, about, you know, holding true to what Spider-Man had been in the past. You know, it seems like there's a lot of changes. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there's, he's and not it, really the witty, he's not really a witty wisecracker. He's not very funny in this movie. No, and that's um, that's a huge problem. Yeah, and Spider-Man is, is I've watched the cartoon growing up, and Spider-Man was always, he was the funniest guy in the movie. You know, then there's the whole... Um, you know, he doesn't shoot web out of canisters. He shoots it out of little spinnerets in his arms. Yeah, um, yeah. And that just kind of makes the the whole puberty joke situation worse <laughs> as he shoots the white liquid out of his hands <laughs> after becoming all muscular and, you know, and getting into fights at school and all that. It's the, the, the puberty elements of Spider-Man are very prevalent already, and they made him very prominent in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's most of the story, really. It, it, this one kind of is like Superman um, from 78 in that we don't really get to the villain story, you know, the, the action part of the story until an hour, hour and 15 minutes into it. Mm -hmm. Up until that, it's Spider-Man. Who is Spider-Man? How did he become Spider-Man? All that other stuff. And honestly, like, that's not the worst thing in the world. No. Lex Luthor, you have to hit just like you have to hit Green Goblin. Hmm. Um, unlike Lex Luthor, I'm not a fan of Green Goblin. Um, I, and I know a lot of like Spidey fans are, you know, going to gasp at that. I think by far his best villain is Doc Ock, which you see obviously in Spider-Man 2, um, followed by Venom, Carnage. You have some other interesting stuff like there, like Craven. Um, but f just from like objectively looking at the comics, other than in the ultimate Spider-Man universe, which we can kind of get in to the differences of that in a sec and how those play into this movie, there's not like a green goblin that seems like it'll play well on film. Hmm. Um, he's just kind of like a very strange, almost hokey character. Um, very much a creation of the sixties. Uh, and so it just, it's going to be hard. I think Norman Osborn is a far more interesting villain, um, as more of like the Lex Luthor type. Um, and so that is something that I think is a little bit more interesting, but I think that you've seen now, um, they tried Green Goblin in this, they tried Green Goblin in the new Amazing Spider-Man reboot with Danny Dehan, and I still think that totally missed the mark. Um. Wasn't he Hobgoblin? Or is it Green? So, no, he's Green Goblin, okay. um, and they just changed that a little bit. Hobgoblin's a completely different character, which is also another it's a very interesting take on the Green Goblin persona almost, uh, but is a huge rabbit hole that we won't get down into. Um, but uh, what I do like about this movie is what you talked about, is he, Sam and the creative team 
did kind of take some creative liberties. Like he didn't use the web the web canisters. Uh, he did not, and it's not a good part, but he wasn't the wise cracker kind of guy. Um, it is kind of a different Spider-Man than what we've seen before. Um, but I think that allowed for some innovation. Um, this movie comes out in 2002, two years after um, the Ultimate Spider-Man universe uh, that Brian uh, Michael Bendis began, started. Um, and so what you kind of see now is like a reinvention of the Spider-Man character that has made him, in my opinion at least, the most consistently successful hero of the past ten years um, in comic books. Um, he's just had... And there's a fantastic creative team that has been with Spider-Man for like the past eight or nine years or something like that um, that is really just doing a great job with his character. Uh, but it has stayed very relevant and very interesting. And I think a lot of that is because this movie introduced the idea of like, okay, we can tweak with his character a little bit and he still doesn't break. Hmm. It's interesting though, to go back here, you talk about the, the green goblin not being um, really a great villain in either, either the movie or the source material, because I think a lot of my problems with this movie are with the villain. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's Willem Dafoe does a fine job. Willem Dafoe always does a fine job of being the over the top character. And as Norman Osborn, he's great, but as green goblin, it's just this goofy, Power Ranger villain. Yeah, almost. Like, and, and know, that's the problem. It's like the whole mechanical suit thing was not great. Yeah. Um, and you have Willem Dafoe, pretty much other than maybe Michael Shannon, like the dude who creeps me out most in this world. <laughs> um, and, and so... But yeah, like, he has the, the James Carville features going on. Yeah, but yeah. But with this over-the-top weird way of talking, and it's it's he's fantastic, but uh, horrifying. Yeah, and he, and he sells it well, but as soon as he puts that mask on... Mm -hmm. Like, well, and that's the thing. The mask is, you know, the, both characters in this movie have masks that obscure their mouths. Mm -hmm. And so anytime Spider-Man and Green Goblin are talking to each other, th there's no actual talking going on. Yeah. It's just two guys staring at each other. Really. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, it kind of makes it look more like comic books because in comic books, obviously, the characters don't move. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but two, you know, it, it, and this is, I'm going to bring it to this point, it makes for better toys. Um, okay. Those characters do. You don't have to deal with realistic human features for these guys. And Spider-Man of 2002 brought the thunder when it came to making movies, big conglomerate events for massive sponsorships. Like you still like now. Think now. I I have maybe a hundred things in my house that have Avengers on them somehow. And it's not because I chose to buy them that way. It's because Avengers are on everything. Yeah, and that yeah. all started with Spider-Man. You know, it was in all of the restaurants. It was in all the fast food stuff. There were toys everywhere. They, you know, they revived a lot of the comics. They revived the cartoon. There was the... <laughs> there was the soundtrack album. Um, <laughs> led by the passionate vocalizations of Chad Kroger and Saliva. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> it was, you know, this was the movie, the comic book movie made commercial. They yeah. realized with X-Men and Blade that these movies could make money. And then they went full bore with, with Superman. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doesn't really bother me that much because it's a business. It's going to make money. And comic books are a great way to do that because you have a built-in audience. Um, but like I said, the villain is my main thing. It, he's an uncomplicated character. 
he's straightforward. There's no real clear reason for him doing no, what he does no, not beyond that he's evil or controlled by evil. And I think, and I'm going to borrow a little bit from a book. I don't know if you've read it. You should. I've read it a long time ago, so I had to go look back up at it. Um, called the comic book film adaptation by Liam Burke. No, I haven't heard of it. It's um, basically he lays out the argument that these movies took hold because of people's need for nostalgia, escapism, and wish fulfillment. Oh, absolutely, I agree. In the wake, especially in the wake of nine eleven. Yeah. You know, we had in America a a need for heroes. We had in America not we didn't want complex heroes or complex villains or really even complex heroes. We just wanted a bad guy. That could get the shit beat out of him. Yeah, and yeah. that was it. You know, we didn't want to see any more buildings fall. We didn't that's, want to see any of that. Yeah. And this movie really came came through in that. As far as punchable faces go, like, <laughs> yeah, Green Goblin's up there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the nostalgia is there in this movie. They they toned down. I think they toned down a lot of the wisecracking um, for this reason to make him more a nostalgic Superman, moral, you know, I, old morals type of hero. Yeah, because when Spider-Man does get to wisecracking, like there, he doesn't hold any punches either, and that's what I love about him is like he's this very timid character yeah. that does become just like brutal when he starts like making fun of people, and you don't see that at all. No, this Spider-Man's nice, and then you have the escapism of, you know, he's just flying through New York saving people. You know, you have the wish fulfillment of here's a hero that found a terrorist plot and thwarted it. It didn't come to fruition. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's all there, and it, it, it's the reason it struck a chord. And the, most of the movie was filmed before, um, before the attacks, but the movie was heavily reworked afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's, you can still see it here and there, but you know, the towers are kind of worked out of a lot yeah, of the shots. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of American flags are put back in. Uh, and then, in, and then in Super Spider-Man Two, American flags are effing everywhere. Well, and that's the thing is like, before Captain America made sense in a movie, mm-hmm. before anyone thought that was possible, this was it for them. Like, and that's what they saw. Like, that DC had Superman, yeah. and Superman, despite the fact being alien, is a very American superhero. For sure. And so for them, Spider-Man was it, and it and it is. It's kind of like the everyman who is doing his part even if that is yeah. like not even if that's not saving the galaxy or keeping no. the world from falling apart and you see that really really brought out in this um it's kind of an infamous scene in in filmmaking circles of uh the bridge where he makes the choice to um either save mary jane or the kids in the cable car which i think they took um borrowed from superman because superman mm. had a similar choice and but then this same thing is brought into the Dark Knight and into all those other superhero movies. So maybe it's just a superhero comic trope. But I'm, I digress. Um, there's this little, there's this moment where the Green Goblin's about to win. He's about to kill Spider-Man, and all these New Yorkers with their thick, thick Bronx accents start yes, throwing sir. garbage at, yes, at Green sir. Goblin. And this was filmed after 9/11. Yeah, and that's this was, was talk this was about, written yeah. into it for this purpose. You know, this was New Yorkers coming together to take out the terrorist. And, you know, the reason I kind of harp on this 9-11 aspect of it was I was, you know, I was in my late teens when this movie came. Well, not my late teens. I was in my, I was a teenager when this movie came out. This stuff was hitting me really hard. It was hitting all my friends, my parents, my, uh, well, my, my you know, adults around me. This was hitting everybody yeah, really yeah. hard. And that's why this movie did, you know, I, I saw that this movie hit a chord. And this movie then set the precedent for all the comic book movies to come. 
Mm. Um, since then, just from that same book, uh, since 2002, um, most of the money made for the comic book movies has been in America. So when a movie comes out, um, the majority of the money for that movie is made in America. Whereas that is not the case for, for movies. any other movie. Yeah. yeah. For every, without exception, every other type of movie, the worldwide, the international gross is always higher than America. But when it comes to comic book movies, since 2002, it's, it's, it's America. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, they redefined superheroes as, well, they re-embodied, recreated superheroes as very uniquely American. And they did it in the, in the shadow of the two towers coming down, you know. And I, so I think that's something that, that has to be discussed when you talk about this movie. No, I, I agree. And I think it is interesting just to see how this movie, X-Men and Spider-Man 2, those are like the three that I see as like foundational for modern superhero movies. Um, and getting them off the ground, like so many movies have borrowed elements from that. Even their own sequels, like Spider-Man mm -hmm. 3 is a gross photocopy of... <laughs> Spider-Man 1 and 2. X-Men 3 is a gross photocopy of... Well, nothing. It's bad. Uh, but, like... <laughs> uh, so the, I, I think that you can even see, like, the reverberations of what these movies have done even now. The Dark Knight uh, ganks a ton of elements from this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's not one that people would think about because that's your brooding, hyper-realistic, gritty superhero. But, I mean, there's the ending scene where, in his own weirdly teenage way Peter's talking about how he you know has to be the hero for the city and that requires sacrifice and all that and it's this monologue of him with him walking away mm. and it's just it's the same thing as the end of Dark Knight with the the hero we we need not the hero we deserve speech yeah, you know? yeah. it's, it's the same thing taking that on his shoulders and then like we talked about the the choice to save one group over another group and you know it's this movie is so boilerplate for all the other movies Mm. And I think when you get back to the basics, the blue, the basic blueprint, it is a little bit jarring in its simplicity because it's a very simple movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very brightly colored movie. It doesn't <laughs> try to be realistic, you know. And New York, it's got all these giant shiny set pieces like the lab with the giant gas chamber that that, that was not necessary to inject these chemicals into his body. <laughs> um, and then the amateur wrestling so ring. Big. I watch a lot of wrestling and I like, that's one, that's a real wrestling ring. This was not an amateur wrestling ring, you know, and it's these, but it's these big shiny set pieces and you see yeah, them yeah. in later movies, you know, and New York is very white. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but that's, well, that, that's pretty uh, representative of the superhero genre. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, but no, it's sadly, yeah. So I, you know, that's it. It's like I said, it's not a bad movie. It doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't really reach out and grab me. And maybe it is because of the simplicity of it, mm -hmm. and maybe it's because of how how teenage the movie is. This is something I was going to ask you. Um, how how old is Spider Man supposed to be? Is he supposed to be a college student or? So when Spider Man first gets bit, he is we're going to say around fifteen years old. The First, comics don't do a great job of explaining quite how old he is, but in the Ultimate Spider-Man universe, which is a retooling of his stories in 2000, he is 15 years old. Um, the college Spider-Man is something that doesn't really exist for the first, like, it doesn't exist at all in the Ultimate Spider-Man universe. It doesn't exist until, like, around issue 30-something, um of 
the original telling of Spider-Man. So I think that that puts him at around junior, senior when he gets bit. Um, so age-wise, it is pretty much spot on. Um, this version of Spider-Man doesn't really take anything from the Ultimate Universe. It takes almost everything from the original, which is interesting to compare to Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 with Andrew Garfield, which almost exclusively takes from the Ultimate Universe. Um, even, like, word-for-word dialogue sometimes um, is just thrown in there. So I think that it's interesting to see that in terms of source material, um, how those two have played out differently. Yeah. No, and I, I think maybe I would have liked the younger Superman better if they were going to make the movie the same way. Because mm-hmm. there's so much, like, the teenage romance. The relationships are so, like, oh, ah, oh, they're so high school. Like, <laughs> he can't be with Mary Jane and because it has to be just right. And she is stuck with this guy because, well, that's who she's dating. Yeah. And it, there's the... The anger at authority figures, just irrational anger at authority figures. <laughs> yeah. All the adults are just one-note characters. You know, Aunt May is great. Maybe oh, her performance and, is fantastic. Yeah, but, like, they're one-note characters. She's, oh, yeah, absolutely. She's grandma, and, well, she's not grandma, but she's grandma. Yeah, And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's told through intentionally, told through the lens of teenagers, and that, oh, that doesn't always work for me. Sometimes, no, sometimes it works, sometimes it irritates me. And that's something like the modern Spider-Man now is an adult. Like he is the head yeah. of his own company. Um, he, like Peter Parker, is at least for a time, for a long time, really was married to Mary Jane. Hmm. Who I and I sent you. I don't know how much source material you read. One of the things I sent you is a story just about Peter and Mary Jane's relationship, which I think like perfectly sets her up as. I am in love with Mary Jane. I think she's fantastic. Great character. Maybe not done the best justice by Kirsten Dunst. Um, and that's a big thing. Like, is it Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane? I'm a big Mary Jane fan. Um, but the modern Spider-Man is an adult. And I was kind of hoping that with this new movie that they're talking about making now, that that was the angle they were going to go with because it's something we haven't seen yet. Unfortunately, it looks like they're going even younger than what we've seen because there's no, like, no one's believing Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield were in high school in either <laughs> of these movies. Right. Um, like, that's just not possible. But it looks like they're trying to go more that angle now, which I get. Um, but I think the adult Spider-Man is something that's very interesting uh, as well that I'd like to see in a movie format. Yeah, and you did send over a lot of material, and I, I read all of it so many times. Good. Just Good. so over and over, um, the the one uh, that was my favorite. Um, Which I one did you say was your favorite? Life I, I didn't. I didn't read any of them, Bennett. Oh wow! <laughs> you have broken my heart, Brad. <laughs> it was a. It's more a time thing than anything. <laughs> But okay, it's no, all good. I do I do appreciate you uh, doing that. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, so it, I have a lot of problems with the movie. I don't, I'm not that entertained by it necessarily. Uh, I think I would have liked to have seen them gone either an adult Spider-Man full on or a teenage Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and I wish there was a real villain. But I get why it was what it was, and it did a good job of being the escape for a lot of people. Yeah. And it was it was entertaining for me. It was a good way for me. There's a line in that book by Lane Burke that um, somebody said to him that, no, I don't expect this movie to be life-changing. I don't expect it to change my life, but it is going to at least let me get out of my life for two hours. Hmm. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that's 
And that's what this did. And I think there's right. a lot of value in pop culture, pop medium, doing just that. Just yeah. not necessarily trying to bring you to a higher level of existence, but just letting you get out of the world for a little while. And mm. I think that's there's value in that. And that's some, a topic for another time. But so just, wait, before we move on, just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts? Like very quickly, yes or no? Do you like Spider-Man Two with Doc Ock? I think it's a better villain. Is that do anything more for you? But it's still kind of angsty, so I don't know how you're going to feel about it. But um, was Spider-Man Two? Was that the one with um with Venom, or was that three? No, that's three, okay, and that yeah. sucks. Because I hated three, man. Well, you should have because it's garbage. Yeah, because it had three villains, and none of them did. <laughs> um, no, um, yeah, I, I do like I do remember liking Spider-Man Two. It's probably been a long time since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's still it, it does a better job, and I think you get I think if I'm remembering right, you get more J.K. Simmons. Yes, hallelujah, fantastic, and base. It's it's phenomenal how similar the scenes between him, his character, uh, J. Jonah Jameson, and then you know the Daily Planet editor, yeah, Superman were, <laughs> yeah, like the yeah, two yeah. guys with the cigar, um, <laughs> yelling at the reporters to get the pictures of the superheroes. It's like, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> no, but I did like Spider-Man 2 a little bit better if I remember yeah. correctly. But yeah, yeah, I think that's probably, and as I said at the beginning, that's the best representation of Spider-Man that I've seen. Yeah. Um, in movie. So. Yeah, and that's still so you know none of my personal opinions to take away from what this movie was and how important it was. Um, I do blame it for a lot of bad comic movies, um, but I think it also can be held you know responsible for a lot of the good ones too. So. That's my last thing. Any final words on Spider-Man? No, I think, I mean, a lot of my stuff to qualify it is biased. I think Spider-Man's my favorite hero of all time. I have more Spider-Man comics than anybody else. (laughs) So, like, a lot of this is based out of I freaking love any way I can take in more Spider-Man content. So, um, but, yeah, I understand your thoughts, um, but I am glad that you do appreciate it because it is monumental in what the superhero genre has become for better or for worse yeah well and speaking of the superhero genre um like i said in last week's podcast it's pretty hard to put together um a selection of just three movies to watch for a week and just to talk about them to as representative of the whole category um i labored over this one really hard um i had a lot that i had to leave out that i wanted to do we had to we didn't talk about any of the batman movies uh, like i told bennett if we watched one, we'd have to talk about all of them, and that's just, we don't have that kind of time. There's very few of you even still listening at this point. <laughs> but, you know, so why don't you give us some of the movies that you either would like to have seen in this or that you just think people should watch in this category? Yeah, so there's some obvious ones. Uh, like, Dark Knight, obviously, is one of my favorite movies, if not my favorite movie of all time. Um but that's obvious. Some other ones maybe that you haven't like given the chance or whatever. Um, I think watching, and I want to do this, watch Superman 1978 and then Watchmen back to back. Because I think Watchmen, and more specifically Dr. Manhattan, is a much more understandable interpretation of being the all-powered being. Hmm. Um, like... And that's what that movie at its core is about, is this guy realizes that he has no stake on Earth and yet is still the most powerful thing that's ever happened. How do you deal with that? And I think that's a very interesting conflict. Um, A lot of it is 
full of Zack Snyder kind of, you know, jacking off to himself, but like... <laughs> As is his want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think that's uh, a really cool adaptation of some really interesting source material. Um, let me see here, what else? Um, see, uh, X-Men 2 uh, is probably one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Um, and... Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to think. Uh, Rocketeer is good. Oh, the Rocketeer is fantastic. Yeah, and that was when I you said like, what's the classic going to be? That was kind of where I thought you might go with it. I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, no, I, I thought about all these movies honestly. Watchmen, um, especially, just because of how um, not I mean unique in the sense of how well that 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 story encompasses comic books. Mm-hmm. As a whole, but um, in in the end, I didn't want to deal with the Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> no, I, I understand. <laughs> but um, yeah, for me though, the two I would mention that I almost included, but I realized it was just because they're my favorites, um, would be Blade. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blade was just awesome. Oh yeah, one of the few black superhero movies. Um, maybe and was, so early movie. on too, yeah. <laughs> like, geez, what happened to us? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, early on, I guess you know, it's the late nineties, but. Early on, before this whole thing blew up, but yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and that it's an important in that it it made a ton of money, and that showed them, hey, we can make a ton of money. Yeah, and they stopped using black people. <laughs> so good, good job, comic movie. Well, actors. but done. no, but it's 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 got my favorite, um, maybe my favorite movie line ever in it, which is some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> <laughs> that just that does it for me every time. That's so all Blade, I, need. I recommend to watch that over and over again. Um, Wesley Snipes phenomenal, and then um, a really recent one, uh, Dread. Um, not Sylvester Stallone's Judge Dread, but Dread. I actually haven't seen that one. yet. Dread is really, really cool, and okay. the Judge Dread comic books are some that I have actually looked at more than others. And and Dread is is just a super cool story. They don't bother with the origins. They don't bother with anything. They just drop you into mm-hmm. this is post apocalyptic policing being done, and it's being done in a real badass way. Yeah. So it's a straight action movie. Um, done extremely well. Um, so those are my two movies that I'd add in. Yeah, I, and before we got, like, if this is a genre that maybe for whatever reason you're unfamiliar with or whatever, like, don't worry. There is so much stuff coming out. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Like, it is, the machine is in full force. Um, Ant-Man, which coincidentally had a lot of creativity from Edgar Wright in it. Um, is coming out in the next week or whatever. He's unfortunately left the project um, due to some creative differences, but uh, based off what I've heard, there's still a ton of Edgar Wright left in the movie, um, (laughs) which will be interesting to see. The new Fantastic Four looks awesome. Um, Like, I, and this is also me being biased because I think Michael B. Jordan is phenomenal, but uh, I'm super excited to see how they do that. Um, you obviously have Civil War, one of the most quintessential uh, comic arcs in history, being put to film next year. Batman versus Superman. Like, there is so much coming out right now. Maybe too much for its own good, <laughs> but I will revel in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just, I'll just be sitting there hoping it's not all crap. Because I'll <laughs> watch it all. You might like Deadpool. <laughs> who knows? Like, I'm just, for but that's a, where we are. Yeah, who um, knows? I've had a ton of fun. Thanks for coming on, Bennett. Oh, um, thank you for having me. I hope everybody out there listening enjoyed this as much as we did. Um, next week, we're going to be talking sports movies. It'll be our last week 
And for some reason, we've invited Stephen Ray Brown to talk about those movies with us. <laughs> um, so listen in if you feel like it. Um, for Bennett Garland, Jesus, dog. <laughs> you have to include him too. <laughs> Key contributor. Hang on. <laughs> so listen in to that if you feel like it. Uh, if you would like to talk to us, we are on the internet. You can talk to us on Twitter at Braves Gen Store. That's Braves G E N Store. Uh, read some of the stuff by Bennett and me and other people at BravesGeneralStore.com. Um, and then pick up the 500 podcast. It's coming back in two weeks, and you don't want to miss any of that. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on on the site there. Um, feel free to share this podcast with your loved ones or the people that you hate. Um, for all, all of us here at the general store, especially me and Bennett, take care, and we'll see you next week. And they say that a hero can say